Let us pray. Glory be to you, O God most holy. Glory be to you, O God most high. Glory be to you, O King of heaven and earth. As a father has compassion on his children, you have compassion on us. Fill us with joy and gladness in the Holy Spirit, that when you shall give to everyone according to their works, we may be found acceptable before you. Through him who has redeemed us from the shame and curse of sin, even Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning is from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 10th chapter, beginning with the 23rd verse. Here again, verses 36 and 37 in Jesus' name. Please rise. Jesus said, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. In Albert Lee, you can locate the Good Samaritan Society, where those with the inability to care for themselves physically are given a place to stay, food, and medical care until they're ready to depart. Samaritan Ministries is a health care sharing community that takes the place of or supplements medical insurance among Christians. Several other caring works, ministries, buildings, businesses carry the name of Samaritan. Ever since Jesus told this parable and the message of the gospel was spread, Samaritan has become a term for someone who cares for and has mercy on the needy. You've likely heard, of course, that Samaritans in Jesus' day were looked on in quite the opposite way. They were enemies of the Jews, looked at with suspicion. They didn't worship truly. They lived apart. They were mixed and unclean. The shock of the parable then comes when it's not the priest or the Levite who helps the poor, broken man, but one of those strange and untrustworthy Samaritans. Jesus taught that lawyer, therefore, that the way man judges is not the same as the way God judges. Instead, God commands mercy on neighbors. This lawyer is like many others in the Gospels whose purpose was to test Jesus. I don't think there are any places where someone tests Jesus with a good intention. What did this individual expect when he asked his first question? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because when he said it, when he, said it he tested Jesus, we can assume that his question wasn't a sincere one. Probably it was intended to trap Jesus in some way. This teacher, who seemed to so many of his opponents to oppose the law. But really, Jesus wasn't opposing all the law. He was opposing all the self-righteously, self-imposed extra traditions for ritual observance, demanding these as an extra measure of holiness that some could lord over others. In fact, Jesus had declared in his Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
So maybe that was the problem. Not that Jesus was against the law, but that he seems to command something new, something more. I'm going to teach you two terms for these things so you can have these as shorthand. Teaching fewer requirements than God gives in his word is called antinomianism. Antinomianism. On the other hand, teaching more requirements than God demands in his word is called legalism. Legalism. These are two pitfalls, two ditches on either side of the road. On the one side, antinomianism. On the other side, legalism. But Jesus is no antinomian, and he is no legalist. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, to that all-important question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't give the antinomian answer. Oh, it doesn't matter. Everyone is going to find it. Nor does he give the legalist answer, listing all sorts of demands and requirements. Instead, he turns the question back on the asker. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now understand how perfect this answer is. With these important questions and with any questions, before we answer, let's learn to ask, what is written? Let David be your teacher who in Psalm 19 wrote, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. There's nothing better that you can do than turn to the word, meditate on the truth, and listen to what God has to say. Be prepared, though, for what God has to say to convict you. The lawyer's answer was correct. The law, the Ten Commandments, the whole requirement of God's will can be summarized on these two points, which he quoted from Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And from Leviticus 19.18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Martin Luther divided the commandments in his instruction in the small catechism. The book of Exodus describes the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The first tablet, in our understanding, is the first three commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall keep the day of rest holy. These three all describe our duty toward God and how we are to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. The second tablet, the last seven commandments, all describe our duty toward our neighbor, whom we are to love as ourselves. And this seems very simple. But when we examine our lives and compare them to the standard that God gives in those commands, that he has written in stone, we might start to fear. That lawyer understood what all these commands required of him, because after all, it was his job to know the Bible backwards and forwards. So he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Man, who is my neighbor? St. Luke describes the inward heart of this man who wanted to justify himself. And we'll come back to that. But first look at his question. Who is my neighbor? This question will limit the scope of the commandment. He was asking, who must I love and who am I not required to love? If there are certain groups, certain people, certain categories that I can count out, well, then I know where I should devote my efforts. In the scope of the parable that Jesus tells, however, he proves that the question was phrased wrongly. By asking, who is my neighbor, the lawyer wanted to leave out people like the Samaritans. 
Certainly, they, he didn't have to love them. Or the Romans, certainly they don't count as my neighbor. The world today likes to put all kinds of isms on this, like racism, excluding certain races, or sexism, excluding certain sexes. But the reality is, you don't need an ism to hate. Simply thinking of any person or group of people as being outside of your requirements to love is contrary to God's law. But Jesus reframes the idea of what a neighbor means. He asks at the end of the parable, So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Neighbor is not someone who deserves our love. Neighbor is a way of being. God requires you to be a neighbor to those you encounter. Now I'm sure you can think of those whom you have neglected to love, and you can think of those whom you have hated. God's word teaches there is none who does good, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So to the heart of the lawyer, he wanted to justify himself. You must realize this is impossible. By wishing to justify himself, the lawyer, in fact, forgot the whole first table of the law, and he wanted to be his own God. He slipped into antinomianism, rejecting the intensity and fullness of the law of God, seeking to replace it with his own law, which he thought was much easier for him to keep. But Jesus' command, summarizing the second table, showed how immense that law truly is. The neighborly Samaritan was the one who showed mercy, and so Jesus said, go and do likewise. He commands you the same, go and do likewise. Stop on your way when you see someone in need. Have compassion. With your hands, bandage their wounds. With your supplies, pour on the salving and healing balms. Offer your own conveniences to help. Offer your own time to care. Offer your own money to provide. None of this, remember, considers the worthiness of the recipient. I've heard the shameful opinion about poor and homeless people that we shouldn't help them because they want to live that way. They're lazy and unmotivated and they just leech the hard-earned money and the goods of the working classes. I don't care if that's true. I don't care about the heart of those who are poor in that state. Do you know the beggar who comes to your door? Do you know the man in the tent on the street corner? All you know is that he doesn't have certain things and you do. Mercy is the command. And yet even in this, Jesus' main point was not to show you how you can earn your way into the inheritance of eternal life. Instead, if that lawyer could see the idol of himself toppled, and if you can see the idol of yourself and your good works toppled in its place, you can see Jesus. Don't think of yourself as that good Samaritan. God wants you to be like that good Samaritan, but you won't make it. You sin daily in thought, in word, and in deed. As long as you think you can achieve perfection in this life, you too are breaking the first commandment, which is the foundation of all the other nine. You cannot keep any of the commandments without God being the only God in your heart but sinful flesh continually tries to supplant him. So do not think of yourself as that Samaritan. Instead, you are the man who fell among thieves. 
You are broken, bereft of everything of value, and left for dead by sin and the devil. For the Jewish people, seeing the priest and the Levite pass by, they must understand that the work that those priests and Levites did, the sacrifices emptied of their meaning, would not save them. Keeping the law would not save them. But in comes a foreigner. Someone from the outside, someone who is looked down on and laughed at by the people there, but someone who nevertheless was apparently very rich, although he appeared poor. Someone who could issue commands, although he appeared to be an alien. The Good Samaritan is none other than Jesus. While you were dead in your trespasses, Jesus had compassion on you. He came down where you were. His word of forgiveness bandages your wounds. The oil which anoints you in baptism brings you to life. The wine in his holy supper, which is his true blood, is medicine for your immortality. He sets you on his own animal, exalting you to the place of prince or princess in his kingdom. He brings you to an inn in this life, a place where you can continue to be cared for until he comes again. Here in this church, this is that inn. Consider that in this life, you still have your sinful flesh clinging to you. When your wounds have not completely healed, you need to stay in the hospital and continue to receive care. Your bandages need to be changed and given freshly, regularly. So each Sunday, you receive the absolution and you hear the gospel. Outside that, when you feel the sting of those wounds, you can press that emergency call button. In your hospital room, you can come to the pastor and confess your sins in private and receive fresh healing bandages specifically for you. Room and board is provided for you here in this inn, in this church. You were already brought in by baptism, but you are reminded of it regularly. And you are given the feast that sustains you here, the feast of your Savior's body and blood, until he comes again and gives you an even greater, everlasting feast. Remember that lawyer's first question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? No one does anything to inherit anything. By definition, an inheritance is a gift. It's given by promise. Your eternal life is the gift of Jesus. Jesus gave his disciples the key to this parable before he told it. He said to them privately, even before this lawyer asked him this question publicly, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. The key is what they have been seeing and hearing, Jesus himself. So understand this, you are not the good Samaritan. God commands mercy, it's true. But he commanded it ultimately and fully upon his own son. Jesus has had mercy upon you, dying for your sins on his cross, taking your death, which sin and the devil had inflicted. And in his resurrection, he proves the eternal life, which you too shall inherit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.